You'll have to excuse the T. Uh, every single time I preach, um, there's never a perfect circumstance, which we should know on this earth, uh, but I happen to get slapped with a cold, and so I got some throat coat here in case anything, uh, anything cracks. And, but my name is Andy Jorgensen, and I'm a part of Connection Church. And as you guys have been introduced to Connection Church, you probably well know that uh, we are a church that has been praying for you for the past year. Um, there is 100 people plus right now, at least 100 people praying for you across town right now on the east side of Sioux Falls. And that is not, I mean, as you guys have heard, there is a talk of a merger, a possible joining of poss- possibly Pastor Jonathan coming in. And, and all that talk is, is independent of us loving and caring for you as a church. Uh, we long to see disciples made in Sioux Falls. And we want that to happen in Cross Point Church, whether we are part of it from a distance or whether we're part of it right here with you guys. So I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to come share God's word with you. Um, again, my name is Andy Jorgensen. I was a graduate of SDSU. I was born and raised in T, so I'm a local boy. And um, raised in the church and being challenged in my faith in my college years and really, really coming to, coming to grips with my faith through, um, through the church that I'm a part of now, which is Connection. And so I'm so excited. Um, this message kind of addresses something um, that I think speaks to you guys very, very well. Um, elephant in the room, this is a time of uncertainty for you guys. This is a transition period. Um, questions come up with a lack of a leader that is, who are we? Why are we here? Is this even worth it? Should I keep coming here? Should I keep belonging to this body? These are natural questions that everybody asks in times of uncertainty. And the book of Hebrews, which is what we're reading today, is actually speaking to the same type of questions that the people had at that time. The people of the time uh, were preaching in a time of leaderlessness. In some regards, they were known to be Jewish Christians. Some of them were leaderless. Some of them had leaders that um, have planted churches and walked away to plant other churches. Um, But this is really, really important to me because I preached this passage when our pastor went on sabbatical. If you've met Jonathan, um, he's a great leader. When he left, that begged the question, why are we here? Why am I here? And so preaching in his stead was, was kind of a daunting task. But as I did that, um, I came up with the same questions. And it was a gut check that I hope as we read this passage, it starts to clarify to you that um, in Christ, you have a leader. And that's the whole point of all of this. And so if you would please open with me to Hebrews chapter 13. As you flip there, I want to I boast a bit in God's word. I say this every time I preach. I don't have to work hard to gain your attention. It's something God has gifted me with to grant people's attention, to gain that. Um, but you don't need my opinion I'm 27 years old, and there is by no merit any wisdom that I could bring to the table that you guys, probably every single one of you, couldn't come and say, huh, I've got more than that. So I don't hope to speak out of my own wisdom today. I hope to speak out of God's word. I hope to see this as reverent, believing that God has spoke, and that it made its way into a book into our hands right now. And so as we pray together before we read this, 
Um, I want to consider the ways in which the Holy Spirit might work through us reading this and me speaking, hopefully not as me, not as Andy Jorgensen, but as the Holy Spirit works, this is something that God is speaking to you specifically. So we're going to read um, chapter 13. We're going to read the verses before it. It's actually chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, and then we're going to go into 13. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us in our time together. God, thank you so much for, for loving us, for giving us your word, for giving us the ability, Lord, to, to have truth in our hands. We ask that we would revere this, that we would consider the ways in which this is speaking to us directly. Why would you guide my mouth that I would only speak your will? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so believed to be Jewish Christians, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background of Hebrews. And like I had said before, um, these people were under some really hard times. They know what it's like, and they've got every earthly right to be doubting. They're pillaged, persecuted, imprisoned. Some of them are martyred. This is not uncommon in these times. So faithfulness has been very hard for these people. They're asking the questions that we're asking ourselves. Is this worth it? And the writer of Hebrews knows this, sees their struggle, and writes what is believed to be a sermon. So that I could probably just spend a half hour reading this book, and it would make a very good sermon. But the majority of this sermon is focused on one thing, and I can't have anybody miss this in this room. This whole book's about Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. We're going to talk about some topical things, but this is actually about Jesus. It's a manifesto about how Jesus is made pure and holy through the gospel and how we are made pure and holy through the gospel as well. So he says, I know Hebrews and Crosspoint Church, Connection Church, whoever we are belonging to, I know that you're struggling, but look to the cross. I know you're being raided and pillaged, but hope in the Christ-bought kingdom that is to come. And so that's where we're at. This focuses on truths, not to-dos. The majority of this book is not a to-do list, although we're about to read a to-do list. But the doctrine that we're about to read first is what leads into the imperatives. So here's what I mean. The truth that we are about to read is what fuels our action. In fact, the action is fruitless if we don't have the belief behind it. Good Christian behavior outside of a belief in Jesus is just that, good moral behavior. And we have no purpose for that, if not in Christ, bringing glory to the Father. So that's an important precedent today as we read today's passage because it's going to lay a groundwork for why. So again with me, Hebrews chapter starting at 12, verse 28. We're going to go through verses 8 and 13. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality towards strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free of the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So as we walk through this, what's the why for worship? Because this is about two things here. The point is worship and community. Worship through community. You're going to worship God, this group right here, by living in gospel truth with one another, you're bringing glory to the Father. So that's the precedent that we see here. That's the why. The point is this. The truth of the gospel calls us to worship God by transforming the way we live and relate to one another as believers. Not worship, praise God, in song, and live in a community, eat together. It's the same thing. It is worship. The why we worship is because we have a kingdom that, is not, that cannot be shaken. And that moves us to worship and live in a specific way. Tim Keller says this, true worship is marked by deep, committed life in community. We're talking skin on skin, truth, conflict, attacking action community here. We're thankful for it and we want to dive in for that. So verses 28 and 29 is just the why. Why are we worshiping? Why can we do all the things in chapter eight? It's because of Christ and the gospel. We have an inheritance that cannot go anywhere that leads us to worship with reverence and awe, it says. Reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire and we have an inheritance that cannot be shaken. So with that, that great news that we can live a life because our kingdom's not going anywhere. We lead us into the how. And that's all of chapter 13. And it's all about love in community. Radical, deep, transformative, integrated love in God's community. If you believe the gospel fully, submit your life to Christ and want to spend the rest of your days bringing glory to the Father, it will radically transform the way that this group of people looks. If we're truly seeking Christ, it's going to look a lot different than the rest of the world is going to look. They're going to look at this group and say, that's a little weird. You're going to say, I know, but so does Jesus Christ. Sacrificing everything for the sake of people who rejected him is crazy. And so we live a radical life that is crazier. We continue that through all time. And so verse one through eight is our imperatives. Um, it could be summed up in the words I said before, love each other, love each other. If you love each other, and if we as believers love each other, this is going to happen. All of the things that we're about to read through, I'm going to go piece by piece and just think, if we love each other, that's doable. If we love each other, that's doable. And so let's, let's take them piece by piece here. Uh, verse one, chapter 13, verse one, let brotherly love continue. Kingdom can't be shaken, therefore, let brotherly love continue. The word brotherly love here is Philadelphia. Eagles fans, yeah. It's a, it's a natural love that occurs between siblings. It's the Greek word Philadelphia. And so the effect of believing this gospel 
is a relationship change. The very nature of our relationship goes from friends and acquaintances. I just met you this morning. We talked this morning to that of a family. To where I say brothers, sisters. And that's true because of what's been done in Christ. It's beautiful. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. The closest people in my life, some of which are here today in the second row, um, these are some people that came along um, in support. They've been praying for you as well. And so these are close family to me. Um, I hope to become close family to you the more that we get to know each other. I hope that's true. And it is a beautiful thing. The more I dive into biblical community as a church, I don't, I don't take that American individualistic, okay, what's my life about? I actually say, how do I dig in with people? I see these people as my actual family, my brothers, my sister, mother, sister, whatever have you. However old, however young you are, you are a family bought through Christ. And this is consistent. The transforming relationship is something Jesus preached when he was alive. So in Matthew 12, um, I'm just going to read it here. Just kind of listen. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother, his actual mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In real community, your spiritual community becomes closer than your actual family. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. This goes against everything that is American in us. It's unnatural and uncomfortable. Or, for some of you, it may be very, very encouraging to have a family that you feel close to. Some of you come from very broken homes with very broken family lives. And I have good news for you that there is a family greater than that family that you've come from. In Jesus Christ, you have a new family and it is not going to be shaken by any trial. Some of you, good Midwesterners like myself, come from a very strong family ethic. Nothing wrong with that, but there's technically this, it tends to be this family first mentality that precedes everything else we do in life. If you've heard that, family first. All right, there's the job, yes, and I have faith, and I've got this, but family is actually what comes first. Jesus is not saying to reject your family. He's, he's, that's not the point of what he's saying in Matthew 12 when he says, these are my new brothers and brothers. He's saying, rather, if your family is getting in the way of you truly following Jesus and faithfully belonging to your spiritual family in Christ, that family is an idol. That family You're rooted too much in that family. And frankly, that's good wisdom because that family will let you down. And those of us with family issues, we know this. They will let us down. Not that the spiritual family won't let us down, but this is extremely powerful right now because of the holiday season. I've talked, this is kind of my like, this is my insight from this week. Um, It's holiday season and I, as an adult, the older and older I get, the more the, like, the veil gets pulled back about what holiday, how miserable holiday actually is. Like I, I talk to somebody in the, in the workplace and they say, yeah, my family doesn't really talk much. So the families are hard. I'm like, 
oh, but loving family, Target commercials, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, isn't it great? And then I talk to another person, they're like, yeah, we, we have Thanksgiving, but we don't really talk about anything. Like, okay, we have, we have got two separate, two separate things going on here with this, this family culture. So I, I think that most of us can identify with the fact that um, families, as you get older and older, don't love each other nearly as much as you want them to. Um, as much as I would remember them to. Um, time with the family is not always Philadelphia, we will say. And it's easy, I think, what happens is it's easy to turn a blind eye to problems. It's easy, something in the past happened, so-and-so said a bad thing to so-and-so, they're in-laws, so they, don't really, they didn't really ask for this anyway, or so-and-so's kid you know, dyed their hair this color and said this thing and tattooed themselves all over the place. And that's just really not appropriate. And so we think that should change. Nobody says this stuff out loud. And so you're sitting there eating turkey at the Thanksgiving dinner table and no one really wants to talk about anything. Because if you really were transparent with one another and the awkwardness that's there, it's going to be ugly. Nobody wants to go there. So as a Christ-centered community, as this family, we do things different. This looks different. In God's community, we are freed to openly and transparently address the issues in ourselves, be humble with our own faults, and those even around us, addressing the conflict we have with those around us, knowing that hope and forgiveness is on the other side. Because hope and forgiveness was in Jesus. We get to talk about the hard things. Unlike a family holiday, we don't let conflict and problems run the day and ruin the meal. We let them fuel the forgiveness, reconciliation that we have for one another. So Crosspoint Church, in what ways are you looking less like an earthly family and more like a Christ-centered one by addressing the issues that may be hindering you from further loving each other in this community and therefore lovingly going out to the community around you? What are the conversations that could be had amongst you guys here that would say, this is going to be a hard conversation. However, we believe the gospel is true for us. And so we're going to have these so that we may be unified in mission together. It's also important to note the radical diversity of this time in the church Um, A healthy church community will bear fruitful relationships in light of their differences of demographic, of race, of socioeconomic status. In this time, Jews and Gentiles, that's that's a different race. And there was a lot, a lot of racism going on in the community. A ton. The church looked crazy in that it was diverse. Something crazy happened where national lines were broken down because of the spiritual community that was formed and the spiritual truth that they had. The healthy community is one that is diverse, that maybe may not share the same age, race, interests, or hobbies, but friends, we share the same spirit. In Jesus Christ, we share something that is stronger than any of those things have in common. And in fact, that familial love for one another, despite diversity, is the thing that brings attention to God's very creativity and power. 
The fact that this church, the more diverse it looks and the more unified you look as a family, despite the diversities, shows that God's creativity and power reigns above all other cultural and socioeconomic statuses. It's so common. Okay, at Connection Church, if you walked in the door, I bet, I bet you, as much money as in my wallet, which is not much, you would say, it's a very young church. Yes, the demographic is a young church. And some might walk into a different church, maybe the one I was raised in. That's an old church. I didn't really like that because it's an old church. And it is unfortunate that the diversity of said churches are not complete, right? We don't have every color of the rainbow in the church. However, what I would say is this. There are no young churches. There are no old churches. It's only God's church. It's Christ's church, unified in community. That is the unifying thing that brings us all together. Yes, there are a lot of young people in our church, but we didn't pick that. We don't put advertisements up. We just want to make disciples, and God brings who he brings, and we don't keep that stigma. So verse 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. A distinct marker of spirit-filled community is one that lets others in. This is very unnatural. The first thing you want to do when you find something valuable is what? Like, you found something valuable, it's, you found a pot of gold, you stash it away, you take it to the bank, right? You hide it. But it seems that a healthy community, in light of what the Hebrew writer is saying, does the very opposite. We hear the best news in the universe, we want to share it with the world. We don't keep it a secret. We reach out to others. And so this is actually referring back to a passage in Genesis um, where Abraham entertained his guests for the night. He brought them in, fed them food. Uh, turns out one of them was God. And so that's the reference that he's saying here that entertained angels unawares. But the point of that verse is to say, hey, don't forget that this is something that is openly, openly needed for everybody to hear. And amidst trials and tribulations, Being hospitable back in these times would have meant bringing somebody in for a night and you wouldn't know if they were a spy or somebody that was out to get you because you were a Christian. There were spies coming in their midst. And so what would happen is you were were being called in this passage to show hospitality to strangers knowing that they may be a brother in Christ who you can speak the gospel with or they may be somebody that's going to put you in handcuffs, call the cops, have you martyred in the street. In that sort of trial is where these people were taught to have an outreach and hospitality towards others. How much more can we have as a church here in Sioux Falls? What sorts of things are holding us back from reaching out outside the camp to others in this? It's the opposite of a country club. This community, what we have right here is the opposite. A country club says this is the most valuable place to be but only the elite can come in. $10,000, please. A gospel-centered church says, this is the most valuable thing in the world. Let's share it with everybody. And that's very, that's very difficult to live out. That's extremely difficult to have something this specifically. It's challenging if you don't feel like you're cared for. If you don't feel like you're safe. If you don't feel like you are being led. It's so hard Take it from the writer of Hebrews as a word to us that amidst persecution, it was still a call on their life. My prayer for for Cross Point Church is that you see the gospel as too good to keep to yourself. And amidst uncertainty, 
you fight the tendency to just huddle up and defend yourselves and protect. Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. We see a gospel-centered community, believers of Jesus Christ is one marked by a deep empathy. And what is empathy? These, these phrases get thrown around all the time. We have a, a, a clinical psychologist in our church and he could debate these all day long. I'm glad he's not here right now. But there, there is a functional understanding of empathy that is reflectant here. And it is not just knowing what someone is feeling, but actually feeling that feeling with them. It's different from sympathy. Sympathy is acknowledging you feel this way, I'm sorry. Empathy is not just knowing that, but actually being, hey, you feel this way, I'm with you, this hurts. And so there's a deep empathy for, prison, for people who are in prison. He was speaking to believers here. They're thrown in prison just for sharing the gospel with people as though you were in prison. He wants us to share in the sufferings of one another. That's what a community does. And it's not just the positions of others um, that we just consider, like I said, in sympathy, we consider them as our positions. When I'm sad, you're sad. This is what this looks like. When I'm broke, you're broke. If you're suffering, I'm suffering. When you're at peace, I'm at peace. When you're joyful, I'm joyful. It's a radical shift that takes the focus of our lives from a me first to a we together. And in that, we display yet again that this is reflective of what Christ has done for us. He did not look down at our suffering and our sin and our problems and say, I feel for you, good luck. He came down in and amongst us. He lived with us. He had the ultimate empathy for us. So it's very, very hard to do this, but it's crucial for understanding the gospel. And here's why. If you have a hard time experiencing the sufferings of others and feeling the pain that comes with that, you're going to have a hard time understanding why it's a big deal that someone would be slaughtered on a cross for the sake of your soul. Let me say that one more time. If you have a hard time understanding and feeling the pains of those in this room, of those outside this wall, you're going to have a hard time understanding why it was such an amazing thing that someone would be slaughtered on a cross for the sake of your soul. It's not going to be a very big deal for you because you can only feel what you're feeling, not what he felt. A true community will experience the pain of others as their own the joy of others as their own. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is pretty straightforward. And it's also not uncommon in the New Testament. Um, Sex used to be the thing that no one wanted to talk about in America. And some of you probably lived through this. Um, there's a cultural standard. It was a taboo. You, just to say the word, like success. for me preaching right now, 50 years ago, it would actually be inappropriate for me to say the word sex. The Bible says it numerous times, more than I could ever say in a sermon. Um, however, now you're more likely to lean into this topic as a culture. 
Now it's all over the place. Now it's being thrown in our faces. And now the thing that we don't want to talk about is the thing that the thing that we don't want to talk about, we will talk about sex. We will have apps to do things. We will struggle with that. But the thing we don't want to talk about is purity, sin, the devastating effects of that sex. And so the opportunities right now for adultery that this verse is warning about, I want to, I want to emphasize to you now, they are exponentially higher than they've ever been. With my phone and with anyone's phone, you are but a couple touches away from seeing just about any image you want. Internet hookup apps make it a swipe left for this to be a thing. I'm not saying it is any worse of a sin or any worse of a problem. I'm just saying, friends, church, family, watch out. This will infiltrate a church if it is not talked about. This is something in our church we are explicitly open about. There are many men in our church that gather together weekly to fight this. We don't, we don't shy away from this. This is not a taboo. This is a sin that was explicitly warned against. And we as a community want to be open about this to say, hey, this is something that was warned several times in the New Testament, numerous times in the New Testament. And we can talk about that. We can talk about the ways. Otherwise, it takes seed and it infests the church community and it breaks down. And so again, my prayer for you guys is that if there are struggling, which in this day and age, it is a struggle. It is. That's the, it, it is. You either talk about it or it starts to win. My hope is that this church is transparent with the issues going on inside of ourselves, with the issues of of any of this, lust, sexual immorality, but it's tied to verse five, which is the same thing paired one and one. Verse five says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's very easy for us, even as Christians, to put sexual immorality in a box by itself, claim it to be the devil, and think that we're exempt from it and completely miss the thing that is almost always it's paired with, and that's covetousness and greed. A desire for more. Both lust, the thing that drives sexual immorality, the thing that will drive you to go looking in places you shouldn't look, is the same thing that drives you to yearn for things you don't have. It's self-centeredness. It's a greed. It's a covetousness saying, I don't have enough, I want more. Whether that is a relationship, uh, an intimacy you don't have, or a money you don't have. They are rooted in the same thing. It's interesting to note that this specifically in the Greek um, means covetousness. It means not lover of silver. So it actually, don't love money. Um, That does not mean money's a bad thing though. It is a tool to be used. And so we don't preach as a church that money's evil, money's the problem. We we, we preach that the love of that money and the the use of that money is the thing that, that more times than sexual immorality, in the Bible, God speaks to greed. Greed is just the desire for more. And this is a recent realization for me that I'm a very greedy person but I don't love money. Greed by definition just means the desire for more. 
It's not necessarily tied to money. This passage, it is. But throughout the Bible, greed is desiring more. Now, in an American culture, we are always taught to what? Excel, get more, someday I'll have a retirement. That is greed being preached and preached and preached in commercials and even in some of the practical wisdom that we've got. It says, you're not there yet. But in Christ, we see ultimate satisfaction and contentment with what we have. And frankly, this, these guys don't have much. Again, they're being pillaged. They're being, they're being wrecked. I mean, their homes are being pillaged. And he's saying, be content with what you have. And they're like, we don't have anything. Are you kidding me? This is radical. Why are you saying be content with what you have? We don't have anything. He's saying, no, you do. You do have something. And that's where the end of the verse says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You've got God. You don't need anything else. Cross Point Church, I hope that you see God as ultimate and sufficient so that at the end of the day, you don't say to yourselves, what have we as a church? What a big building we have? What faithful deacons we have? Those things are true, but that is not the thing that you have that you can hold to as a community. My hope is that you see God as ultimate and you say, I have Christ. We need nothing else. That's all we need. And Because of that, it doesn't matter if this building goes away. It doesn't matter if, if a leader comes in and doesn't satisfy, which is the next couple of verses we'll, we'll dive into. You have Christ. And in that, you need nothing else. This is drilled home in verse six. The very next verse, verse six, as we walk through that, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. True contentment is found in the character of God and his promises, not the circumstances. It is found in his very character. If the joy set before the readers of Hebrews has anything to do with their current life circumstances, they're hosed. They're in trouble because they got the worst circumstances you could imagine. Um, even the strongest of men would be in complete panic. But in the midst of this, the writer gives them the truth that surpasses anything that could get them down. And it doesn't have to do with a better circumstance. It's a better hope. And so we don't seek as a Christian community better circumstances. Now, we raise all things to the Lord in prayer, but watch the tendency of an American church to just pray for better circumstances. You won't unsee this now. I promise you, you won't unsee this. Pay attention. When somebody prays in a gathering, says, what are our prayer requests? We bring everything up to the Lord. Pains, sufferings, hardships. We bring that up. However, if the only thing we're praying for is that circumstance to be better, for my arm to feel better, for my house to not be so down and ratty, for my wife to not be, I'm, I'm not married, I'm a single man. But you get the point. Like, for us to only pray that this would get better and this would get better is actually to say, God, please make my life better. I don't really care about you. We fight the tendency to do that. We find true contentment because our Lord is our helper. He is a better hope than that circumstance. We raise all things up to him. But we see that he is ultimate and he is the better hope. Things are not the hope of a church. 
Safety and prosperity is not the hope of a church. A building is not the hope of this church. Man, a leader, is not the hope of this church. Otherwise, not having a pastor would be a really bad thing if it was. It would be devastating. It would be ultimately, like, destructive to the church to say, well, we don't have the one thing that we need, therefore, we're in trouble. We're not a church. The God of the universe is the hope of the church, and he will never leave you or forsake you. Did you read that? I will never leave you or forsake you. You have the God of the universe that will never leave you or forsake you. There is no man that will do better. There's never a person that will come out, breathe, cross point, breathe, exhale. You've got that. He will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is your helper. What is any man going to do to you? You're in good hands. Which topically is the, the next verse and one that is a bit challenging right now for, for you guys. Um, verse seven, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. I understand and I, and I know from speaking to some of you that this would be one of the most difficult things you could possibly do is to remember leaders because right now the last thing you want to do is remember those guys. There's pain in this church that has to do with leaders not being good leaders. That's a challenging thing to admit and acknowledge. Um, however, I want to encourage you that whoever the next leader of Cross Point Church is, whoever that is, is met, I hope, and you see this, is met with the same brotherly love and hospitality that this passage calls for you to have with each other, not because they deserve it, but because that is what we are called to do. Beyond that, a posture of humility that leads to fruitful ministry and revival. I, I hope that when a leader comes in here, that we are able to forgive those that may have perceivably put us in a bad position, but also this is not dogging leaders, it is in fact honoring them. And so I hope that you are a church that is markedly honoring your leaders, seeing the call. He's preaching this to these people because they are probably being very, very critical of their leaders at the time because the leaders are all over the place. The leaders might have left and gone and plant other churches. The leaders weren't in the readership at the time, because he's talking about in the third person, we don't know precisely where they were, but, but don't read this and say, oh, those leaders, we can't do that. The leaders are what got us into this issue. No, 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 no. Leaders have been given to you by God. They're not perfect. The next guy that walks in the door to be your leader, he's not gonna be perfect. He's not gonna be the answer to your problems. In fact, I know so for a fact because God has placed him in here to lead imperfect people as an imperfect man. That call that an elder has in your church is heavy indeed. Verse 17 later in Hebrews says that they are to lead. You're going to submit to the elders as one who is going to give an account. They have been called to care for your soul. Like 
Think of this. Before God, they are going to have to give an account for your soul. You specifically, they're going to walk in the door and they're going to care for your soul. Please do not be a burden to them. Encourage them. I hope to see revival in this church with a posture of humility that a leader could come in and say, this is a loving church that follows the scriptures, that reads and takes this so seriously. I'm so encouraged by them. Are there challenges? Absolutely. But I hope that you guys are a grace-filled church. And so even if you don't have an earthly leader right now, we close with verse 8. You might say, this doesn't apply to us right now. Maybe later, Andy, I'll look at that advice. But no, verse 8. We don't have anything right now. Here we are. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is your leader. You have a leader. Not only do you have the God of the universe, but you have Jesus Christ as your example. He is the ultimate leader that the pastor would point you to anyways. He is the one that any sort of interim pastor would lead you to. He is the one that this is all about. Pastor Daniel's across the way right now, preaching about who? Not himself. You do have a leader. That church has a leader, but he is not pointing to himself. He's pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the leader that we've been given that we all look to. He lived perfectly so that when your human leaders fail, you still have hope. You can still hope in things beyond that leader. Why can we love each other as a family? Because of Jesus Christ. Why can we show hospitality to strangers? Jesus Christ. It's a broken record. We're going to keep going. This this verse is everything, and this is the whole book. Why can we insert ourselves into the pains of one another? Even though we might not feel comfortable or confident that our pains are being cared for, Jesus Christ came into our pain and did the same for us. The reason we get to see each other as brothers and sisters is because he saw us as family and adopted us as brothers and sisters first. The reason we welcome outsiders into our midst, amidst trial, is because when we were outsiders, he came outside the camp and chose to love us and welcome us. Now we do the same. We have him as an example. And the reason that we not only care about the needs and pains of one another, but share in them, is while we were wrapped up in sin, we deserved the ultimate pain. He experienced it for us. And now we do that for others. We stay pure in marriage. We stay pure away from debauchery because Jesus was faithful to us even though we were unfaithful to him. We, we stay pure in all of our marriages, on our relationships. We have clean eyes because even though secondhand, not married, the spouse will fail you. We failed Christ. He still stayed married to his church and he does to this day That's why we can do it. That's what fuels the marriage. We can be content with so little because Jesus was robbed of everything, yet contented to give us not his money, but his life. Son of man came into the world with not a dime. No pillow for his head. He had no home. He gave us everything. And now we can give generously of ourselves because we've been given abundance spiritually. We may have lots of things. You may have lots of money. Great. Use it for the kingdom. Use it abundantly. Give all to each other because that's what Christ did for us. And we can shed ourselves of fear 
Any insecurities you feel right now can be shed because Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Oh, that you may be a church marked by that truth, that you might believe that, and that that may be the thing that moves you forward into health and revitalization here in Sioux Falls. Let me pray for us. Spirit, thank you so much for speaking through your word. If there are some in this room that have not yet come to know you, Lord, would you begin to stir them right now? Would this be the call on their life to start believing in a hope that is greater than anything they've ever had? And not even because it's going to make their life better circumstantially, Lord, here on this earth, Lord, but you've given an eternal hope. And we ask that this church would become a community of people that preach the gospel stronger than any other word, that your word would be magnified here in Sioux Falls. I thank you so much for their hospitality. I thank you so much for um, their kindness that they've shown towards me and to our church. And I ask for, for patience, that you would show them your goodness and mercy amidst the waiting time that they have now, Lord, that you've shown them an ultimate hope. And we ask for all of this in Jesus' name, amen.